0: You know, I've had a good time sharing the word on the book of Hebrews. Last night, we spent over an hour on four words. (laughs) Let us draw near. And I got a little bit sidetracked, and like I said last night, I blamed it on the Holy Spirit. I'm not totally sure that that was the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to say it was. And um, it was good, but... This morning, I had so much more that I was wanting to share, and there's no way I'm going to get to hardly any of it. And so I'm just going to jump right in and start sharing on some things that I think uh, we've got to cover before we uh, finish up with the book of Hebrews tonight. So let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll start again with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 23. These are the verses that I've been using all week long, all weekend long. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And you know, I believe that that pretty much summarizes the book of Hebrews, those few verses right there. But these have become religious cliches to us. Many of us just skip over these things, and these words have an impact on us. So what I've been doing, this is now our fourth time, and tonight will be our fifth session I've been going back and just amplifying on things, and we talked about what it meant to to enter into the holiest by a new and living way contrasted to an old and death-oriented way. And man, those are radical things that we've said. But what I want to do today, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 9, and let's start looking at what I think is probably the most radical point in the book of Hebrews and it, and it fits perfectly with Hebrews 10.23 where it says you have to approach God with your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and your body's washed with pure water. water and we're going to talk about this but we're going to be talking about how that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins, past, present and even sins that you haven't committed. This is a radical concept and one that is foreign to most Christians. Most of us are still living under an Old Testament mentality that every time we sin, it's a new transgression against God. And so we've got to go back and ask forgiveness and get back into right standing with God. That your sin and your failure affects God's attitude towards you. That's the way that most Christians today live. That's the way that most churches uh, preach. And you know, I can't tell you the motive behind everybody, what they do. Some people it's because that's what they've been taught and they sincerely believe it and they just keep teaching the same thing that they've been taught. But I can tell you that one of the reasons that the body of Christ preaches this so much is because you can control people, manipulate people with this. You can tell them that unless you come to church, unless you pay your tithes, unless you do this and do this and do this and do this, God's not going to bless you and God won't prosper you. And it's a way of controlling people. When you start telling people about the total freedom that we have from sin and what Jesus has done for us, it really, in a sense, frees people. And you lose control. Of course, now, the the thing is, people don't realize this, but... Love will captivate you stronger than condemnation and fear and doubt ever will. Love is actually a greater motivation. And with love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, There's no fear in love. Fear has torment. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. Perfect love will cast out fear. If we really were preaching the true freedom that we have in Christ... It would affect people so much, they would love God so much that they would serve God more accidentally than they ever have on purpose before if they got hold of the love of God. But to the natural man, it just doesn't look that way. There are a lot of preachers. You know, I probably get more resistance from preachers than I do from uh, people in churches that preachers really get upset with what I'm preaching because they think, Boy, you're just setting the people free. How are we going to control them? How are we going to manipulate them? How are we going to keep them coming to church and paying their tithes if we tell them God loves them in spite of their performance? It's preachers that really get upset with this. Amen? I know that really blessed a lot of you. (laughs) So we've already read down through Hebrews chapter 9, the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 9 are talking about that the Old Testament tabernacle had all of these pieces of furniture in there that were symbolic of things that are reality in the the temple that's in heaven. And we ended with verse 5 talking about that the cherubims of glory were over the mercy seat, but we can't speak of those particularly now. That doesn't apply to us because the cherubims are now removed. There is nothing there to prohibit you or keep you from entering into the presence of God. Jesus has opened up a new and living way and you aren't going to have any angel stand in your way in approaching to God. You now have total access to God even when you've messed up, not just when you're holy and when you're perfect. Man, that is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 9 verse 6 says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. You know, this is an obvious truth, but many people don't connect these dots, so let me just say this. It says that while the first tabernacle was standing, the way into the holiest of all was not made perfect. So therefore, here is a logical conclusion. If you are still living under the Old Testament mentality, this law mentality where you got to do this and do this and do this to appease an angry God and to appropriate his blessing. If it's based on what you do, that's a law mentality, then you don't have access to the holy of holies. You cannot worship God and enter into this intimacy and into this joy and relationship with God as long as you have this Old Testament mindset. That's obvious what these verses are saying. In verse 9 it says, which was a figure. The Old Testament tabernacle was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices which could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. You know, I wanted during this series to teach specifically a whole session on the conscience because most people don't understand the conscience and how it works. And we blame the Holy Spirit often for what your conscience is doing. The Holy Spirit is not the one that makes you feel miserable. The Holy Spirit is not the one that makes you feel guilty and shame and stuff like that. That is your conscience. And I'm not going to teach on the conscience. Let me just say this. You need to go get some materials out there. I can't even think of where I've got this. But I know I've taught on this other places. But it's my opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody usually has one. And it has a couple of holes in it. But it's my opinion. Amen. Amen. That God didn't create us with a conscience. That we received our conscience when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is descriptive of what the conscience does. And men immediately, Adam and Eve, immediately begin to feel guilt and shame the moment they ate of the tree. And I think they got the conscience through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's really not the way that God intended for people to function. But since we are fallen human beings, we all now have a conscience, and it's a fact of life, and we have to learn to deal with it. And there's a number of scriptures that talk about cleansing yourself from an evil conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 is one of them, and I was going to major on that. But you need to recognize that your conscience is not a totally reliable guide, it is a guide but it's not completely reliable. The Bible says that you can sear your conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can sear your conscience with a hot iron. You can have an evil conscience. Hebrews 10, 23. If you've got an evil conscience, then there is a good conscience. Your conscience has to be purged by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And the Old Testament law could not deal with your conscience. So people under the Old Testament... They could be forgiven by performing all of the rites and the rituals and going through the sacrifices, but they never felt clean. They never were free of guilt. And sad to say, most Christians today don't feel clean and free of guilt. They still have a sin consciousness. And I'll be reading this scripture uh, in a few moments out of Hebrews 10 too, where it says that if the, there could have been a sacrifice offered which would have really dealt with sin, then they would have had no more sin consciousness. That's the way that we should be living, and very few Christians have appropriated that. So this says that the Old Testament law could not make him that did the surface perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and in divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. At 10th verse is making it very clear that the law was temporary, that it was only until something happened. There was going to be a reformation. You know, if you just took the book of Hebrews, I've made this point a dozen times already, but it's contrasting the old way with the new way. And it is saying that there was a temporary way of dealing with people and there is now a new and a living way to approach unto God. And yet the average Christian is mixed the old covenant law with the new covenant grace and they're somehow or another trying to make both of them fit. They don't fit. You cannot live under both covenants at one time. And the reason that we are so frustrated and having problems in our life is because basically the church is mixing the old covenant law with the new covenant grace. You know, there's so many things in the Old Testament. Like, for instance, David said this in Psalms chapter 51 when he was repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, Restore unto me the joy of, my, of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Created me a clean heart. Did you know we sing that song today in church? And people sing that. You know, that's absolutely wrong. Somebody says, but it's Scripture. It is Scripture. Old Testament Scripture. That's right. But when you got born again, you had a new heart created in you. And so for you to sing, creating me a clean heart, well, you ought to either get born again, or if you're born again, you ought to quit singing that song and start thanking Him that He did give you a new heart. And then instead of saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me, instead of praying that, you ought to be singing, thank you, Father, that you promised you'd never leave me nor forsake me. There's a difference between those covenants. Isaiah chapter 59 says, My arm isn't short that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and God. Did you know that's still being preached? And it's true. If you aren't born again, that's true. But if you are born again, then He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Your sins are dealt with. And you have to interpret this old covenant. It was showing the damage that sin did to us, and it's true. It's not inaccurate what it was saying, but it was incomplete. And now we have a covenant that has now solved all of these problems and it's wrong for us to be praying for a new heart and cleanse me and, oh God, don't cast me away and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And approaching God the way that David did, the way that Moses did. You know, I could get Plum off the subject. In the name of Jesus, I am not going to do this, but I just got to throw this in. That, you know, intercession today, I shouldn't say this. Because if I say it, I'm going to get stuck on this point. Wendell, don't let me get stuck on this. But anyway, people are interceding and they use Moses as an example, the way he said, repent and turn from your fierce wrath, O God. The way that Abraham interceded and said, oh God, spare Sodom and Gomorrah. God, if there was 50, wouldn't you spare it for 50? How about 45? How about 40? How about 30? And you know, all of these things and... People use that as an illustration of how we're supposed to pray today. And yet the Bible calls Moses a mediator. That God gave the law and ordained it in the hands of a mediator. Galatians chapter 3 calls Moses a mediator. But in 1 Timothy, it's either First or 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe verse 5, it says in the new covenant there is only one mediator and that is the man Christ Jesus. So if you try and intercede the way that Moses did to say, turn from your fierce wrath. If you intercede the way Abraham did, the way David did, if you pray the way that they prayed, then you are becoming a mediator between an angry God and man. And you know, it was appropriate before Christ came because there hadn't been an atonement made. So it was appropriate to pray the way that they did. Those were right for them. But under the New Covenant, there's only one mediator. And if you try and pray the way that they did, then you are anti-Christ. You are taking the place that Jesus occupies. You are trying to do what He's already done for us. And the way that people are praying today is anti-Christ. It's against Jesus. Those are strong words, but they're all true. There's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And that's what verse 10 was talking about. This was only meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. It was okay at that time. It was the best thing at that time. But what we have now is so wonderful that it makes all of that other... Why would anybody want to go back and live under the Old Covenant? It's amazing. It's amazing. In verse 11, "...but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building." In other words, not something physical, a physical tabernacle or a temple, but there is a spiritual tabernacle and temple in heaven. And look at this in verse 12, "...neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once." into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now I'm going to make this point over and over because these scriptures make it over and over. But there's about five different times in the next few verses that the scripture makes the point that the Old Testament sacrifices offered sin offerings over and over and over. Every time you sin, there had to be a shedding of blood. Every time you approach God on a feast day, a new moon... Uh, the birth of a male child. There had to be shedding of blood. There had to be a payment. There had to be an acknowledgement of sin and an appropriation. Blood was shed over and over. And then on the Day of Atonement, one day out of the year, there were sacrifices made for the entire nation to cover all of the sins that were missed. There was just constant flowing of blood. Like on the dedication of the temple, there was over 30,000 animals killed in one day. 30,000 in one day to dedicate the temple. That's the way it was under the Old Covenant. But in verse 12, Jesus entered in once. There are about five times in, in the rest of this chapter, in the first part of chapter 10, that it emphasizes once. One sacrifice worked one time. He's making a contrast and most Christians haven't renewed our mind. We still think that every time we sin, there's got to be a new offering for sin, that we've got to go back, that we lose something. The extreme interpretation, the ultra-Pentecostal believe you lose your salvation every time you sin. The lesser interpretation, but the same thing. It's just the lesser consequence is that, oh, you don't lose your salvation, but you lose the blessing of the Lord. God's not pleased with you. He won't fellowship with you. You can't have joy and peace. You won't get your prayers answered if there's any sin in your life. And so every time you sin, you've got to go back and reatone. You've got to reapply the blood. You got to go back and somehow or another receive forgiveness for that sin. Every sin has to be dealt with individually. That's an old covenant mentality. The new covenant, and we're going to say it so many times that if you believe the Bible, you're going to have to deal with this. It is making the point that Jesus entered in once, and look at this in verse 12. He obtained eternal redemption for us if words mean anything. He entered in one time and obtained eternal redemption, not momentary redemption, not until the next time that you sin. He obtained eternal redemption. The word redemption, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, redemption, it says, is the remission of your sins. Redemption is the remission, forgiveness of your sins. So Jesus, by one offering, obtained eternal forgiveness of sins. Eternal. Not just till the next time that you sin. Jesus isn't dying over and over. This is a radical concept. And again, it shows how far the body of Christ today is from walking in the new covenant, this new and living way that God made for us, and how much we are still mixing the way it was done under the old covenant. There is a total different way to approach unto God. In verse 13, it says, "...for if the blood of bulls and of goats is in the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh..." How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And I could teach on that for a long time. But you know what? You cannot truly serve the living God until your conscience has been purged by the blood of Jesus. And this is like it says, the old covenant law in verse Nine, never dealt with your conscience. It doesn't deal with your conscience. Most Christians today have not had their conscience purged because they're living under an old covenant law performance mentality basis, and you cannot have a clear conscience under that system. That's right. That's right. God. Man. And so most of us haven't received the benefit of a clear conscience, and that's the reason that we aren't serving God acceptably ...is because we are still condemned and feeling guilty... ...and not entering into the Holy of Holies... ...and taking full advantage of the relationship that God has made for us. In verse 15, "...and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament... ...that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions... ...that were under the First Testament... ...they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance." Again, a foreign concept to a large portion of the body of Christ... Many people in the body of Christ believe that you are saved and forgiven. And if you were to die in that state, you would go directly to hell. But then, I mean heaven, excuse me. You go directly to heaven because your sins have been forgiven. But every time you sin, you lose that relationship. And they have developed terminologies that don't even exist in the Bible. There's twice in the Old Testament that the Bible talks about being a backslidden heifer. Talking about a cow. And they have taught, taken that and they've developed a doctrine that you're backslid. That, and what most people mean by backslidden is that you were saved, but you've committed sin. You haven't confessed it and hadn't got back in right relationship with God. And if you were to die in a backslidden state, you would go directly to hell. Even though you've been born again for 40 years and walking with God, you commit a sin and don't have that sin confessed, you're backslidden and you go to hell. That is not eternal inheritance. That is conditional inheritance, momentary inheritance, depending on what you do and whether you get everything confessed. That is totally contrary to what this is teaching. That is a wrong concept. That is a religious teaching and it is not found in Scripture. Amen. Selah, you just need to let that soak in a little bit. You know, that reminds me, I was painting a house one time for a woman, and she was a Baptist lady. And anyway, we, we I talked to her the whole time I painted her house for a week, and she, uh, you know, she got to where she liked me, and she says, I just don't understand why you left the Baptist church. She says, we need nice young men like you in the Baptist church. This was a long time ago. And... uh I said, well, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they kicked me out. They asked me to leave. And she says, what do you mean baptism of the Holy Spirit? Are you talking about speaking in tongues? And I said, well, that's part of it. I said, that's not all that there is, but yeah, I spoke in tongues and they asked me to leave. And she says, well, they'd have asked you to leave my church too. And I said, now, wait a minute. I turned over and showed her, you know, just one scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, I believe verse 39, where it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. It says right here in the Bible, don't forbid to speak in tongues. So how could you say that? And she said, hey, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. (laughs) And you know, when she said that, I just like threw up my hands like, how do you deal with the person that... They're going to believe things and it, they don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. There's some of you sitting right here listening to me and you're saying, Well, I see that, but that's not what we believe. You know what? You just need to change. You need to get to a place that if this is what the Bible says and, and what you, where you go isn't saying that, well, then you need to let God be true and every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. We need to get to where God's Word dominates us more than tradition more than anything else. So in verse 16, it says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after man are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Wherefore, neither the first... Testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission." It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, the physical tabernacle and these physical things that symbolized what was true in heaven. It was necessary that they had to be used the blood of animals and of goats to sanctify those. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The blood of bulls and of goats were only types and shadows and pictures But they could never take away sins. It will go on and say that very clearly. In verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. It's making a contrast. How in the world do we miss this? Jesus' sacrifice isn't like the Old Testament sacrifices. They were only shadows and types, and so they had to be repeated because we needed to keep this shadow constantly in front of people. We need to keep the symbolism there so that people could see it. But they were only symbolic. Now we've got the real deal. Why do we keep hanging on to the symbolism? You know, if, if you could just imagine this pulpit being like a tall building here, And you were standing over on that side and I was on this side. You couldn't see me because the building was blocking your view. But you could see my shadow. If you could see my shadow, my shadow could give you information about me. It could tell you whether I'm standing still, whether I'm walking towards the corner or whether I'm walking away. It could tell you whether I was crouching down. It could tell you if I was carrying something. There's a lot of things that you could tell about a person from looking at their shadow if you can't see them. But suppose that I walk around the corner and I'm in full view and if you run up and fall down and grab my shadow, we'd think you're crazy. My shadow is only a benefit if you can't see me. But if I'm here, why would you embrace my shadow? The Old Testament law, it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, were types and shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. They pictured how Jesus was going to forgive our sins, but they couldn't forgive your sins, and they had to keep this shadow constantly in front of the people and offer it over and over. But it's very clear that Jesus doesn't do that now. Jesus doesn't enter in like the high priest every year. He doesn't have to atone for your sins every time you sin. One sacrifice dealt with all of your sin once and for all. You have been cleansed of all sin. That's the point that he's making. So go back to verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If he was doing it the way the high priest did, Jesus would have had to have offered himself millions and billions of times for all of the people whose sins have been forgiven. But one sacrifice dealt with all sins of all people for all time. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for every individual sins or for every individual sin of every individual. He offered one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, done, over. Sin has been atoned for. And so it goes on to say in chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there too perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Question mark. This is a question. If the Old Testament sacrifices could have worked, they'd have quit offering them because the worshipers once purged would have had no more conscience of sin. That's what it goes on to say. Because the worshipers once purged, once purged, should have had no more consciousness of sin. No more sin consciousness. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't accomplish that, but Jesus did accomplish it. And if we would draw near and enter into what has been made available for us. If we would reject the Old Testament law and enter into this new and living way, you can reach a place to where you have no more sin consciousness. You know, that's scary to most people. Most people think, oh man, if I wasn't sin conscious and if I wasn't afraid that God would get me and that God would punish me and that God's not going to bless me and I'd get sick and all of these things. If I didn't have those things hanging over my head, what would keep me from just going out and living in sin? If you turned me loose, I'd just go live wild if I wasn't afraid of God's wrath and judgment. That's because more people are comfortable with fear and punishment than they are grace. You know what would keep you living right? It would be like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, the the love of Christ constrains me. Fear will motivate you to a point. And it will cause you to, to live up to a certain standard, but it will never satisfy you. Your conscience will never be cleansed. You'll never have true joy and peace. It's like it says first. John four eighteen, fear has torment. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love because perfect love will cast out fear. And this is where most Christians are. Most Christians are serving God because they're afraid that God will punish them, won't answer their prayers, won't bless them. And so they read the Bible not because they love God but because they're trying to put in their required minimum hours get a star for their Bible reading, and if they get so many stars or points, they can cash them in for an answered prayer. You know what? That's useless. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels and don't do it motivated by love, it profits you nothing. If you have all faith so that you could remove mountains and... and So that you can understand all mysteries and don't have God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. If you give your body to be burned, or your goods goods to feed the poor, or your body to be burned, and don't do it motivated by God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. The motive behind what you do is more important than what you do. If the reason you are serving God is because you're afraid He's going to hurt you, punish you, get you, if you don't do it, then it profits you nothing. And this is where a huge amount of Christianity is today. They're doing the right things and it's not profiting them because they're doing it, trying to manipulate and motivate and make God do something instead of receiving it as a free gift through the Lord Jesus. Amen. If your motive is wrong, it voids any good that your actions are doing. That's right. Reading the Bible is a good thing to do, but if you're reading, reading your Bible to impress God and to make God love you and to make God answer your prayers, you've voided any good that it's going to do. Going to church is a good thing. You need to go to church. Matter of fact, over there in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, I believe it is, it says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's the next thing we would have talked about if I'd had time to get into all of that. You are supposed to be in church. But you know what? God doesn't give you a grade or points or or extra favor because you go to church. God would love you exactly the same if you never went to church again. If you never darkened the door of a church, God would love you the same, but you wouldn't love God the same because you wouldn't be hearing the Word of God. You wouldn't be built up. You wouldn't have like-minded people. Going to church isn't for God's sake. It's for your sake. If you don't go to church, you're stupid. You are just absolutely stupid. But here's my point. God loves you, stupid. Amen. God's not mad at you, but you're just absolutely stupid if you don't study the Word and go to church and pay your tithes. You're just stupid, but God loves you, stupid. Amen. God's not mad at you. You're just crazy. I mean, it's just wrong. Amen. Amen. For time's sake, let me jump down. He's talking about, he quotes from Psalms chapter 40 verses 6 through 8 about how that Jesus came to change everything and take away, he says, sacrifice and offering. You aren't pleased with all of these blood of animals, but you've provided me with the body. I'm coming to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second talking about he's ending the Old Covenant and putting into place a New Covenant. And then in verse 10 he says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified means to make holy or separate. You are sanctified, purified, holy, separated from sin once for all. Once The body of Christ is believing, oh, I'm saved until the next time I sin. Oh, God loves me until the next time I sin. She. Have you ever seen one of these tracks that it's like the four spiritual laws, which there's some truths in there. I'm not totally against that thing. I've used it, but it... Pictures a a cliff over here and man's on this side. And then here's God over here and there's this huge gulf in between. And it shows attempts to bridge the gap and no man can reach from where they are over to where God is because of this huge gulf that sin has made, this rift between God and man. And then they picture a cross coming and bridging the gap. And now man is able to enter in over here to God. And they use that to tell you that you need your sins forgiven so that you can be over here with God. Now that's good as far as it goes. But you know what? There's people that take a track like that, pray it, and they, they are just, man, I'm forgiven. God loves me. And so they get saved on Sunday and they just have a wonderful time. They wake up on Monday and... Without even realizing it, for 40 years they've given Monday to the devil and sang about Blue Monday and, oh, i got to go to work, and they get up and drag, and all the weekend's over. And so you just by habit start being depressed and discouraged because that's the way you've done everything for 30, 40 years. And all of a sudden, about halfway through the day, you think, man, I was saved. Everything was wonderful yesterday and here I am back depressed and discouraged and I'm sitting in the same cubicle and I got the same people ragging on me and all of a sudden your joy isn't there. And so you go back to the person that led you to the Lord and say, what happened? I was so happy yesterday. How come I'm not experiencing the same joy? And you know what the average person will tell you? Sin. You must have sinned. And you say, well, oh, I thought Jesus forgave me of my sin. Oh, He did. But you've sinned again and erased the cross. Now you're back over here and there's sin separating you. Well, I thought that God forgave me of my sin. Well, He did, but you've sinned since then. And so now you've got to repent. And you've got to get that under the blood. And all of a sudden, this joy and this peace and this hope that you had was erased because sin has been separated you again. And this time you can't get born again again, so what do you do? All of a sudden you just think, well, it was too good to be true. I thought my sin was really forgiven, but it was only partially forgiven until the next time I sinned. And now God's ticked off. Maybe He's not going to send me to hell now because I got born again, but I can't enjoy the presence of God. I can't get a prayer answered. I can't. God's not pleased with me. He's upset. And so you're back over here and now you... You can't get Jesus to die for you again, so you just settle into an inferior, second-class Christianity because sin is still having an impact. That's wrong. Man, the Lord, one sacrifice, cleansed you, sanctified you from sin once for all. All sin has been dealt with. Verse 11, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Again, he's making a contrast. Under the law, you had to offer sin, sacrifices for sins over and over and over. And it's contrast, and That's the way it was done, but in verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. I have had some people challenge me in verse 10 where it says that we were sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I've had some people say that means once for all people, not once for all time. You have to go get every sin dealt with. But if you just keep reading it in context, verse 12 makes it very clear that he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. This is for all time, not just for all people. It is for all time. One sacrifice dealt with your sin once for all time. Once forever. Once forever. In verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. How many times has he got to say it? I think that's six times that it's made the point about one sacrifice forever, for all time. One sacrifice dealt with your sins once for all. You have been sanctified, verse 10, and perfected, verse 14, forever You know, the reason that I think it's so hard for people to understand this is because of what... I've got this teaching out there entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body. And to me, this is the key that just unlocked my brain and helped me to understand this. People see this and they think, I'm perfected forever, and they go look in the mirror. And they see zits and gray hairs and wrinkles and bags and ugly, and they just think, this is... This is perfect. This is as good as it's going to get. I'm sanctified and perfected forever. And then they search their emotional realm and they, they have fear and they're worried and they're depressed and they're discouraged and they think this is, this is sanctified and perfected. And they say, the Bible is so hard to understand. But it's not your body that has been saved. It's not your mind and your emotions that have been saved. Looked over in chapter 12, verse 22. Remember that men are the ones that put the chapter and verse divisions in there for reference sake. It's helping me to tell you which verse to read. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not a new letter. It's not a new thought. This is the same letter. It's the same author making the same point. And he said this in chapter 12, verse 22. But you are come unto under under Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. This makes it very clear in context. 10.14 says you were perfected forever. What part of you is perfected? Not the part that you see in the mirror, not your personality, emotional part, but the spirit is the part of you that has been made perfect. In your spirit, you were born again and you became a brand new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. It didn't say all things are becoming new. All things have become new. It's a done deal. In your spirit, you are completely changed. You are a new person. And according to Ephesians 4.24, that spirit was created righteous in right standing with God and truly holy. In your spirit, you are as pure and holy as Jesus is. 1 John 4, 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he, he is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this world. Not so are we going to be in the future, but so are we in this world. And again, people go look in the mirror and they think, this is the way that Jesus is? Or they search their emotions. This is the way that Jesus is. No. Your physical body and your soul haven't been saved. But your spirit has been changed so that in the spirit realm you are identical to Jesus. It's the spirit that's been sanctified and perfected forever. And then Ephesians 1.13 says that after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This born again spirit was, cre- was forgiven of all sin. And then instantly it's vacuum-packed, sealed. The Holy Spirit encases it. And if you sin as a Christian, that sin will enter into your physical body and give Satan an opportunity against you with sickness or something like that or poverty. It'll enter into your soul and into your thinking and it'll give Satan an opportunity to make you discouraged and depressed and fearful. So don't sin because that gives Satan an inroad into those areas. But your spirit is sealed. And that sin can't penetrate that seal. This part of you that was born again and became righteous and truly holy is instantly vacuum-packed. And it never loses that holiness and purity. It has been sanctified and perfected forever. And and John 4.24 says, "...God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth." God is a spirit. He is looking at you in your born-again spirit. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God is seeing you in your spirit, and in your spirit you are as holy and pure and righteous as Jesus is. And so, if you want to worship God, worship Him in spirit and in truth come before him on the basis of the born again you that has been sanctified and perfected forever yes man if you understand this you know what it could literally make you so that you have no more sin consciousness you aren't physical oriented you aren't just judging and evaluating everything based on your actions but you're based on father i came to you and i'm a new creature and i'm sanctified and perfected forever i'm holy i'm righteous Thank you for what you've done. I enter boldly into the throne to the very holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that you've consecrated for me through Jesus. And I'm going to draw near with a true heart. That's talking about in that born-again spirit part of you. Having my conscience washed, my heart washed from an evil conscience. Yes, amen. That's the way that you draw near to God. This is nearly too good to be true news. Look over in Hebrews chapter 10 again, verse 15. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness unto us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. This is going back to Psalms chapter 40. This was already quoted in the 10th chapter up there in verses uh, uh, 4 through 7 or something like that. And it's going back to those same verses from Psalms chapter 40 verses 4 through 6. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. Or excuse me, I missed that. That's going back to Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That was quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verse uh, 12. We've already covered that. So he's going back to this and he says, "...and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more." Verse 18, "...now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin." There is nothing left to do. If you don't think that Jesus has dealt with all of your sin, past, present, and future... If you think that every time you sin, it's a new infraction against God and it's got to be atoned for and you have lost your right standing with God until you get it back under the blood and repented and back into the right position. If you believe that, there is no more offering for sin. Matter of fact, I'll probably deal with this scripture tonight. I'm running out of time this morning. But I'll deal with Hebrews chapter 6 and it makes it very clear that you can never crucify Jesus a second time. That would be putting Him to an open shame. That is unacceptable. God will never redo what Jesus has done. There is no such thing as being born again, 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 again. There is no such thing as getting your sins covered over and over and over. There is only one time that Jesus died for sins and He is now seated at the right hand of God. The significance of that is He's not working. He's not doing something. He is seated. He's not still making an application. The way that most people see salvation is every time a person gets born again, Jesus applies their blood, His blood to them and forgives them. And then after they get born again, every time they sin, they got to come back and confess it and get it reapplied. That would picture Jesus just constantly up there for millions and millions and millions of Christians that are sinning billions of times every day. Just making a constant applying of His blood and applying His blood in the... There would be no sitting on the Father's right hand. There would be no rest. That's totally contrary to what all of this is saying. Jesus died for our sins one time, sanctified, perfected us forever. Sin is not an issue with God. It's only an issue with you because we have been preached the Old Testament law that is still imputing sin and still making you sin conscious and making you under the thing that you have to come back and constantly get cleansed. The scripture says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that He, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means an atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. Here's something that's going to be a new wrinkle in your brain. You know what? Everybody's sins have already been forgiven. Even unbelievers' sins have been forgiven. Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. Not only ours, but the whole world. The truth is, nobody's going to go to hell for homosexuality, lying, stealing, murdering. Those sins have been paid for. You know, Hitler, as far as we know, went to hell. He did not make Jesus his Savior, but he didn't go there for killing six million Jews and starting a world war and all of the terrible things he did. You know what sends people to hell? is the sin of rejecting Jesus, the atonement for their sins. It says over in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit, I believe it's verse 8, that when He has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Lord knew that people would just take that and run with it and make something out of it that it wasn't intended to say, so He clarified it. The next verse, verse 9 says, Of sin... Because they believe not on me. The Holy Spirit convicts of one sin. That's the sin of not believing on Jesus. Holy Spirit's not the one that's convicted you because you didn't study study the Word and it makes you feel so unworthy and so condemned. And oh God, I ate dessert again. I promised you I wasn't going to do this. You know what? That's not the Holy Spirit. That's your conscience that's condemning you and convicting you. The Holy Spirit convicts of one sin and that is the sin of not believing on Jesus. And if a person doesn't accept the atonement that was made for them, their sins have been forgiven, but if they don't accept it, then you know what? That voids what Jesus did for them, and they will suffer for sin. I'm not totally sure on this, whether we suffer for our individual sins. There are some scriptures that would make you think that way, or whether we suffer for that singular sin of rejecting Jesus. But let me say it this way. That the sin of rejecting Jesus is infinitely worse than homosexuality, than adultery, than murder. Those things pale in comparison to the fact that God Almighty loved the world so much that He sent Jesus. Jesus suffered untold amount, just... You know, we we focus on the cross, and I by no means am trying to minimize the cross, but Jesus suffered the moment He entered into a physical body and became a man. Here was infinite, unlimited God, now confined to a finite body. Here was the Creator walking by people that He created, and they ignored Him, didn't even know who He was. Think about that suffering. Think about seeing people die that He created and He never made us to die. And He knew it was sin. And He saw our suffering. He became part of us. And Jesus suffered from the moment He entered into a physical body. And it culminated in the cross and all of those things. But God gave that much sacrifice. He went to this expense to redeem us and to obliterate sin. And for a person to ignore it, And act like it's unimportant. Or a person to say, oh well, thank you, that's a part of it, but I've also got to be holy. That diminishes what Jesus did to where it was only a part of the answer instead of the total answer. Those kind of things are infinitely worse than murdering a person. Spurning the love of Jesus... And just ignoring it, and doing, going about to establish your own righteousness instead of yielding yourself to what Jesus did for you—that's worse than homosexuality ever thought about being. Religious sins of self-righteousness are a greater offense to God than anything else. Jesus went in and ate with publicans, tax collectors, who were people who were treasons. They were treasonous. They were uh, collaborating with the Roman government. They were thieves. He ate with tax collectors. He went in and he was merciful to Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. He, he, the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, he said, let those are without sin cast the first stone. He was merciful to prostitutes, to people who were liars, thieves, murderers. You know the only people Jesus ever rebuked? religious hypocrites that were proclaiming their goodness and God owes me something because I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. And Jesus rebuked them. You can read the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew. You scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers, you look good on the outside but you're full of dead men bones. These are people that never committed adultery, that never lied, that never stole. They paid their tithes even down to the spices in their gardens. They were doing the right things, but they were trusting in their goodness instead of in a Savior. They were rejecting the atonement of God, and they, in a sense, were atoning for their own sins. Boy, God blasted them. He was merciless on hypocrites, religious people. That's the greatest sin of all. That makes all of these other sins seem like nothing in comparison. And I tell you, the body of Christ, the religious church in America today, is just as full of Pharisees as it was during Jesus' days. People that are trusting themselves. Amen or oh me? It's true. And I'm sure that a lot of it is out of ignorance, but nonetheless, it's wrong. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has ended the sin question. And the average Christian today is just bogged down with sin. Again, this is Saturday morning. You're the cream of the crop. You are probably more committed to God than the average person. And yet I can guarantee you the vast majority of people in this room are just struggling with how can you overcome sin and trying to get over this and that? And your whole relationship with God starts and ends with sin. When you enter in, oh God, I'm so sorry. I just approach you so humbly. God, I'm sorry for this. You start confessing everything. Our relationship with God, the average Christian, revolves around sin. Trying to overcome sin. You're trying to overcome something that's already been overcome. You're struggling, you're, you're fighting with something that's already been won. You're trying to get into a room that you're already in. You're pleading with God for something that He's already given you. And we wonder why things aren't working better. We hadn't even got the foundations established. Boy, I tell you, this is awesome. And again, I know that what I'm saying is contrary to what most of us have been taught. I'm not living in a vacuum. I came from basically the same place that any person in here did. I was super religious. But you know what? I'm telling you what the Word says. And I'm just challenging you today to make the decision that the Bible says to let God be true and every man a liar. Recognize that traditions and doctrines of men are what's making the Word of God of none effect in your life. If you'd grab hold of the Word and renew your mind with it and start approaching into the holy place by a new and living way with a new high priest, understanding that your sins have been obliterated. God is not mad at you. God's not upset and He's not going to get upset. God's not going to judge you. If you understood that, It would transform your relationship. It would transform the way you present the gospel to other people. It would transform everything. Instead of saying God's going to judge America. Man, God judged Jesus so that he doesn't have to judge America. Does that mean that America is safe because God's not going to judge us? He's already placed our sins on Jesus. No, we're in the process of destroying ourselves. America needs to turn. America needs to change, but God's not going to judge us. I used to preach that if God doesn't judge America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because we are just as ungodly as they are. I used to use that saying. And now I say that if God does judge America, He'll have to apologize to Jesus because He's paid for sins. Sin is over. God's not punishing America. Not God's not judging America. But does that mean that, well, then we're fine? No, we're in the process of destroying ourselves by turning away from God and living in lasciviousness and covetousness. And if people don't turn back to God, I guarantee you we're giving our enemies great opportunity against us. That's right. That's right. Ungodliness is killing this nation. Yes. It's a it's a shell of what it used to be. Amen. And so see I can I can deal with that. I can recognize that people need to live right, but why do you live right? Not to please God, God is pleased with you through what Jesus did. And if you've been born again, you are sanctified and perfected forever. You're sealed. That part of you doesn't change. God is a Spirit, and God looks at you in the Spirit. But does that mean that you're free now to go live in sin? Well, it means that you could go live in sin, but if you do, you're just stupid because you're giving Satan an inroad into your life. And Satan, it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16... Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you are yielding yourself to Satan, the author of that sin. And he's going to come in and put sickness and disease on you. And he's going to take away your joy and terrify you and make you bitter and angry and depressed. And so quit living in sin. Quit giving Satan a free shot, free access to you. Live holy. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach this message. Because when you start talking about that sin is non issue and that God has called you to live in grace, one of the immediate criticisms that comes up, people are going to say, yeah, you just preach this so that you can go live in sin. You must be living a terrible life. I live a holier life than probably most people in this room. Man, I... I, Live a separated life. You cannot say that I am preaching this message and it's allowing me to go live in sin. I live holier than most of you do. There's things that you do that I wouldn't come close to doing. There's things that you watch on TV that I'd never watch. I live a separated life, but I don't do it in order to please God. I do it because I know how much God has done for me. I'm so excited about it that I just love God more than I love hatred and murder and adultery and killing and sports and other stuff. And so I just don't do that stuff. I'm living a holy life. You can't sit there and say that I'm preaching this to indulge sin. And if you truly understand the grace of God, the scripture says in Titus chapter 2 verse 12, that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand what I'm saying, this isn't going to free you to sin. It's going to free you from sin. And it's going to make you serve God even more. Amen. Amen. Boy, this is great news. This is awesome, awesome news. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, tonight I'm going to try and answer some questions. If you've listened to what I've said, and if you've had any religious exposure whatsoever, you ought to have some major questions. And I'm going to try and deal with those tonight, but I'm going to let you go today. Let me just real quickly say that if you aren't born again, boy, what a great message for you to be born again.